Welcome to the Technology Transactions Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the craft of negotiating and executing technology-related deals. I'm your host, Jay Ward. I've been practicing working with and advising emerging growth and large companies on venture capital and technology law matters since the early 2000s. Some of the best experience and training I've had was in supporting both the Google and Oracle cloud legal teams. I'm an alumni of Williams College and Harvard Law School, as well as the big law firms of Reed Smith and the dearly departed Heller Herman. I'm also the founder of the Black Technology Attorneys Group on LinkedIn. I have a law practice here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I specialize in helping buyers and sellers of technology products and services close deals faster and more efficiently. You can learn more about me and my practice at www.jwardlaw.com and you spell out the J-J-A-Y. This is podcast number two, and today we will cover a protocol for conducting technology contract negotiations. In podcast one, we tackled a protocol for evaluating technology deals. Today, we move the deal forward and look at the actual negotiations. So to kick off, negotiation 101, focus on needs and not positions. Take the time to think about both yours and the other sides before negotiations start. An irrational focus on positions can lead to adversarial negotiations and lengthening the negotiation cycle. Worse, it can limit creative problem solving, which is a key aspect of successful negotiations. If, as buyer, I say that I need an uncapped limitation of liability, is that really true? Is $25 million really not sufficient? $50 million? Certainly there's probably a number that works. So we really should go into the negotiation thinking about what will effectively cover the buyer's risk as opposed to the position that an uncapped indemnity is something that our limitation of liability is something that's absolutely required. Buyers should come to the table with a realistic assessment of the risk of the deal and its actual needs. It should be prepared to demonstrate and defend them. Same on the seller side. If a seller simply refuses to consider buyer paper, well, why? That's a position, not a need. A seller may have a need to not commit to buyer paper commitments that it can't abide with. However, if the buyer paper can be crafted and negotiated to eliminate those commitments, then why not do it? For seller's counsel, consider that the buyer is at the table for a reason. And it's usually not because buyer counsel wants the deal. There's a business stakeholder at the buyer that wants the deal to happen and is not going to be patient with a lawyer that throws up specious roadblocks. Be mindful that your seller client certainly wants and needs to get the deal done, but unless it's in the quarter, think about the leverage you have as seller and how it can best be used. For buyer's counsel, it's simple. Literally, the seller needs to get the deal done. It's how they raise more money for venture cap, more venture capital money. It's how they maintain their stock value. Or in the case of individual salespeople, it's how they pay their mortgage or send their kids to private school. With patience, buyers can often get favorable deal turns by letting the seller's momentum drive concessions on their part. Yes, you need to be mindful of the internal dynamics of your buyer client. They may need the technology urgently or immediately for a project, but if possible, use time to your advantage. Let's talk about redlining protocol. 
since redline documents are usually the central focus of a negotiation. Someday I may devote an entire episode to this topic in the future as it is critically important and there's very little out there on how it, quote, should, unquote, be done. So I have some redlining do's and don'ts. On either side, whether or not you're representing a buyer or a seller, do offer an unprotected Microsoft Word document to redline. Never offer a PDF unless your position is this is a take it or leave it deal and you have the leverage to back up that position. Don't simply delete proposed language without a comment and flip it back to the drafter. Unless it is patently obvious why you're deleting a provision or some language, always accompany your rejections with a comment. It saves time. If I know why you're rejecting my proposed language, I'm more inclined to possibly agree with it. If I don't have an explanation, I'll just waste time and use the call to find out. So do consider accepting proposed language, then deleting it, showing it marked, and again with a comment why you did it. All calls and meetings should have an agenda and objective. Again, this is meeting protocol 101. If you're a seller's counsel, try to resist salespeople that just push for a call just to move things along. You know, that's a waste of time and a possible irritation to the buyer side, especially their counsel or procurement managers. Be clear that you can add value to the call, possibly by brainstorming. However, if you reach the limit of legal authority, say a limitation of liability, then it's up to the salesperson or business stakeholder to either escalate the matter internally or escalate it with the client or use their relationships to move things past the deadlock. I like to have an internal pre-call to make sure that my stakeholders and I are aligned on what the meeting's purpose and objectives are. You can also use the internal call to assess what your leverage is, as well as to assess key deal points and initial and fallback positions in advance. This is also a good time to either review or prepare the agenda for the call. All business stakeholders, but especially salespeople, should take the time to understand the other sides, the buyers, purchasing process, and who has the authority to approve exceptions. Salespeople should sell, they should schmooze. I used to be um, actually a salesperson, and what I tried to do was build relationships in the customer buyer community so I could understand who the players are and what the process of getting a deal done is. Don't leave it to the lawyers to find out. We often can't. Other lawyers may not tell us. So critical to try to find out before the call, again, what the appeal and exceptions approval process is. How do we escalate to get past deal points that the players on the phone call may not be able to uh, get past themselves or a topic or a deal point that's coming up in the red line and uh, trading a draft that seemed to be sticky. Sales and buyer stakeholders should take the initiative on this and find out early. Okay, let's get down to the actual meeting and conference call and negotiation protocols. I like to start all calls with a roll call with introductions and roles. It always helps to know who is at the table and why they are there. What can they add? When I'm buyer's counsel, I like to identify the most senior salesperson on the call. I can often use their presence to get seller's counsel to move by appealing directly to them. Oftentimes, they're the ones with the authority to get buyers, um, sorry, um, seller's counsel off of a particular point. Speaking of authority, 
try to make sure you have all the key stakeholders, stakeholders available either in person or by phone or Slack. Few things are more frustrating, frustrating install the negotiation process more than getting to a deal point that cannot be resolved by the people on the call. In large vendors, representatives from departments like business practices or the finance and sales organizations can and often will make themselves available to participate in these calls. So look beyond your frontline sales team on the other side for these individuals and see if you can get them to participate. They can often provide the creative alternatives that you need to get past loggerheads and negotiations. Also on the issue of who's at the table, avoid imbalances where one side has lawyers and the other side has contract managers with no authority to make deals. That is just a recipe for frustration on everyone's side. I recommend also using real-time drafting tools like WebEx or Zoom. You can often accomplish more with a couple of hours of dedicated online or in-person negotiations, both sides looking at a document in real time, than in weeks of sending drafts, redline drafts back and forth. I'd like to make a defense also of in-person meetings. You know, we, we don't see them that often. But for me, for any deal seven figures or more, consider an in-person all-hands drafting session where both parties bring their stakeholders to a conference room in person, devote a couple of hours, and knock the deal out. Particularly for any deal where the companies are in the same general area like New York City or Boston, and particularly um, the San Francisco Bay Bay Area, get in the room and sit down and negotiate. Just get it done for fast and directly. Um, I have a weird story about this where I was representing a a large software cloud vendor um, that uh, routinely would have seven-figure deals, and they had a no-travel policy for their attorneys. And when I ran the numbers with the supervising attorney I worked with, you know, that it would cost me probably less than $1,000 to fly down to LA negotiating a, you know, I think it was an eight figure outsourcing deal with a major hospital down there, that it just made sense to get it done and spend the thousand bucks to go down and do it and get it done in a day. And my supervisor, uh, the client attorney said, that's not a scalable model. And I noted, well, from your lips to God's ear, this company has enough eight figure deals that they have to hire more attorneys to staff them. Um, in any case, I, I think it's efficient. I've used it, uh, this technique effectively in a number of different situations. And the salespeople tend to be very grateful that A, I suggested and B, I executed it. So back to the call. Right up front, after your introductions, establish who has the pen. That is, who will be responsible for turning the next draft. It's pretty frustrating when, it's, when this is not established up front and both parties run through the deal, we get through the negotiations, and neither of us has taken really detailed notes on what's been agreed to and how the draft needs to be revised. So that's something critical to establish early on the call. Final point, either side, be prepared to wait. You may not be able to resolve every deal point in the negotiation, and oftentimes by walking away from a deal or walking away from a call for a few days, you can give the other side space to consider whether to continue to object to a deal point or not. This is especially important to do when you actually have the leverage. Don't feel pressured to reach a deal on a critical point 
on the call or in the meeting itself. I use this tool quite a bit, especially when I know I have the leverage. Thanks very much for listening. I look forward to chatting with you on our next podcast. Once again, this is Jay Ward. You can reach me at j at jay, jaywardlaw.com. Thanks again for listening.